some of you may be wondering, when are we going to get through with these seven churches of Asia and get over into that stuff about the Antichrist and about the seals being broken and all the things that are going on in the book of Revelation? Well, we've got just a little while longer, and we'll get to that. It's very important that we take these scriptures as we come to them because there's good lessons that we can learn in these uh, second and third chapters of Revelation. Tonight we start this third chapter and we're, we're discussing this evening the fifth of the seven churches of Asia. This is the church at Sardis. And as soon as we read these first verses here for tonight's lesson, you'll understand why that I have titled the message tonight, The Zombie Church. Now, I actually argued with myself about whether I ought to use that title because I kind of had the gut feeling that there might be somebody here who would say, oh, you ought not to say things like that. We don't believe in horror movies and you ought not to use anything that's scary like that and too Halloweenish. There is no such thing as the night of the living dead. And to those of you who think that way, I say, calm down, take a Valium. It's just a simple reference, just a simple reference here that everybody can understand Because this scripture is about a church that looked like it was alive, but actually it was dead. When I prepare the messages for Revelation, uh, one thing that I do is I I check what a lot of other people have to say about the scriptures that uh, we're studying. I may check uh, seven or eight different commentaries to see what people have written about this. And it's interesting that in four of the commentaries that I checked on the church at Sardis, they all start out with the very same illustration. And the illustration is about the stars and the heavens and how far away that the stars are from, our, from the earth. And one of the things that we really can't understand in astronomy, or really fathom really, is the distances that exist between the earth and the stars. And uh, so we've shortened the, the distances because we can't understand it very well to something called light years. Light, a light year is the distance that light travels in one year, which would be about six trillion miles. Six trillion miles is simply too far above our comprehension to really understand. And so scientists have called those distances light years. And somehow we think that if we reduce it to a light year, that helps us to understand it better. Uh, that helps us to comprehend. But what it actually means is that if there was a star that was 50 light years away from us, that it would take 50 years, if that star was to explode or to burn out, it would take 50 years for us even to know that it happened. 50 years. If it burned out 10 years ago, it would be 40 years before we would realize that there really wasn't a star there any longer. And so these four commentators use that very same illustration to talk about the church at Sardis. This is a church that looked like it was still alive, but the light had gone out in the church long ago and they didn't realize that the light was gone. Well, we're going to read tonight what Jesus has to say about this church. Let's stand, please. And we're going to notice some other things in the message that are in question also about the church. Uh, Revelation chapter 3, let's start at verse number 1. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. 
Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and thank you for everyone who's come tonight to hear the message. Lord, we just pray that we would learn something uh, from this tonight that will help us and to know better what kind of church that we ought to have right here in Berean Baptist. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Sardis is the fifth of these churches, as I just stated. And just like the other four that we've studied, this was a real church that was in existence at the time of the Apostle John. But it's also a church that has characteristics that are like many churches that we find today. An interesting thing about the way that these letters was delivered is that the four previous churches had probably already received their letters uh, before Sardis received their letter. And what I mean is that John didn't write the entire revelation before he began to send these letters out. And so it may be that that first church, Ephesus, had received their letter before Smyrna, the second church, received their letter. But the church at Smyrna had already heard about the letter that was sent to Ephesus. And likewise, Smyrna received their letter before the next church, Pergamos, and so on. And as we come down here to the church we're studying tonight, Sardis, they may have already been aware of the letter that was sent to the Ephesians, uh, to Smyrna, to the church at Pergamos. And so these people are probably in anticipation, wondering when their letter is going to come. And they may very well have been thinking, what will Jesus say about our church? What will the letter say when we receive it? Well, as we study this tonight, we ought to be asking ourselves the very same question. If Jesus were to send a letter today to the Briam Baptist Church, what would he say about us? What things would be contained in that letter And we should be wondering, do these things that we find in the letters to the seven churches of Asia, do they characterize us? And if they do, what are we going to do about it? Well, this evening in the message, I want to pose some questions. We've uh, read this text, and so now let's answer some questions about the church at Sardis. Question number one is, what is the reputation of this church? It's interesting that the Criswell Study Bible begins this section with a note right in front of it that says simply the dead church. Jesus, the one who stands in the midst of the seven churches, as the word of God says, he holds the seven stars in his hand. That's the pastors of the churches. Jesus, the one who knows all about them, who knows all about all churches. He says, you are a church that has a reputation that you're living, but you're actually dead. So what we find here is a church that's going through all of the motions They were doing many things that churches do, but in the spirit, they were actually dead. And I believe that we can find a lot of churches in the world today that are exactly like this one in Sardis. And so we can describe this church this way. In their opinion, they are alive, but in God's opinion, they are dead. Churches that are in this category run to two opposite extremes, either They're a church that's just barely holding on to life. There's really no activity that goes on there. They have some fossilized members who who do attend church, but they're really not doing anything. 
Then on the other hand, the other extreme is that there are churches that are buzzing with activity. There are churches that have something going on every day of the week. Sunday is filled. The parking lots are full. But just like a busy manufacturing plant that has a lot of activities, they may be doing something there, but they're not producing Christians. A busy factory might produce cars, but it's certainly not producing Christians. And there are many churches that may be very busy doing things that churches do, but the problem is they're not producing Christians. So there might be a lot of activity that's going on in the church. The church has a social atmosphere. People come for the fellowship with one another and the social intercourse, but the church is really not doing what God has designed the church to do. Now let's think about that first extreme for just a minute. There are some churches that have grown old. And what I'm talking about, the membership of the church has grown old. And so every pew in the church is filled with gray hair. And this is a church that likes to rest on whatever it was, whatever that church was in the past. I don't want you to get me wrong about this because I certainly do love gray-haired people. I have lots of gray hair myself. And I know that there is a lot of wisdom in the senior citizens of the church. And in this church, I want to tell you, we have some folks that are great examples of faithfulness. I only wish that we had younger members of our church that would look at the faithfulness of these older folks and see the love that they have for their church and how that their lives have been centered in the church And that our young people would do the very same thing, that they would take their eyes off the world and what the world has to offer and learn that your church is the place where you need to be. You need to love your church and to be here. And I love the elderly people of our church that come here. They fill their place in their pew. They're here for the services. They may not be able to do all the things that they used to do. They may not have the energy to do what they used to do in the church. But they will be here. They will support us. They will pray for us. And many of our older people in the church are the very first ones to come to the pastor and say, I am praying for you and I support you and God bless you. They encourage the pastor in his work. And I love those kind of people. They're very valuable to this ministry. But I am afraid that there are some churches that you walk into and when you go in, the church is the night of the living dead. The people in the church are simply dead. And what they've done is they've grown grown old and they've become very content with whatever, whatever it was that they did. And they don't want anybody to come in the church. They don't want anybody new in the church because they don't want to disturb things the way they are. And so they don't want children uh, coming into the church and running around because kids get in the way. They don't like the noise. They don't like the irreverent nature of children who haven't yet learned that the church is supposed to be a stuffy place. And the church is a place where you're supposed to sit up straight and act like or look like you forgot to take the hanger out of your suit on Sunday morning before you came. And so we have people in churches like this who love the way that things have always been done. They don't want anything new. And if it looks like it came out of any year besides 1932, they don't want it in the church. So there are churches that are like the one church that put up a sign on the outside. Many, many years ago, they put up a sign on the outside of the church that said, Jesus only. And what they didn't realize is that over the years, the vines had grown up on the side of the church and covered up the J-E-S, and now the sign says, us only. And that's exactly the way that they run the church. 
So that's one extreme that you find. The church is dying for lack of activity. There's lack of zeal there. There's nothing going on in the church. But then there's that other extreme. There's the churches that have all kinds of activity. Many things are going on there. The church is bustling. Activities every single night. There's a group that meets for every conceivable type of problem. You have the church where there's a group here for overeaters, and there's a group for anorexics. There's a group for the alcohol recovery side of things, the alcohol recovery group, and there's the drug rehabilitation group. There's the, the class for the divorced people, and there's the class for the single guys who couldn't get a date in a sea of women. And so they have all these things that are going on, except they have not this one thing that they really need, and that's nobody is teaching the Word of God. Nobody takes out the Bible and says that the answer to every problem that you have is the fact that you are a sinner. You're against God. You you have failed relationships in your life. You're helpless. You're hopeless. You are a sinner because you haven't trusted Christ. And somebody needs to tell people the reason you have problems is because you are defiled. You're dirty. And you need to come to Christ. And when you do come to Christ, you'll still have problems. But you'll be content with your lot because you'll understand, for me to live is Christ. Now, folks, I want to tell you, I don't want you to misunderstand me. There's nothing wrong with having problems in the church. There's nothing wrong with starting groups that help people that are in different kinds of distress. But if a focus in the church becomes those things, and the focus is on all the other kinds of activities, and the focus is not on Jesus Christ, then you can have all the activity in the world, but you're in a church that is a dead church. It's not living. You may look like you're living. You may have the activity, but you're actually dead. D.L. Moody once commented, I would rather say this one thing I do than to say these 40 things I dabble with. And so, friends, if we have to be a church that says this one thing we do The one thing we do is that we preach the Word of God. This one thing that we do is that we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ so people will understand they must be born again. But today we have those churches that have the church on the sign, but nobody ever opens the Bible. They have their 40 days of purpose to preach, but their purpose is all about them, how they can be a better them. And there's really no focus that's on Christ, the one who stands in the midst of the churches. They say that they focus on Christ, but they deny him because they don't preach the truth of the word. They water God's word down. So there's no sinner who comes to church who's ever offended by what they say. So they have 40 days of purpose. And their purpose is to make the church 40 times more like the devil instead of like God. So these are are churches that really do have a high opinion of themselves But in their opinion, they are alive, and in God's opinion, they are dead. Jesus said, I know your reputation, but friend, you're just kidding yourself. You think that you're alive, but you're spiritually dead. That's the reputation. Now, let's go on to the second question. The problem in the church has been identified, so what's next? Well, number two, what are they required to do? Verse number two says, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. So what are they to do? Well, first of all, they are to strengthen what remains. Now, thankfully, this is not a church that's all the way gone because this is a church that did receive a letter. 
Christ can say about them that you're not living up to your reputation. You're not really a church that's alive. You are a dead church. But nonetheless, they're still a church. I mean, at this point, they're still one of the Lord's churches. Dead, but still a church. So there's some grace that's in this church, but there's some grace that needed to be cultivated. They need to get back to the gospel of grace. And so he means here, what remains in the church, don't let that slip any further. Be careful, brace it up, strengthen it up. Take care to see what's being lost in the church. Bring those things back. Don't fall away any further. And I wish that many Christians would learn this, that when you fall, the thing to do is get back up because the harder, uh, the more things that you enter into, the harder it is for you to get back. And I wish that church members would learn the lesson that when you start slipping backwards, catch yourself right then. And that's because every sin that you commit makes it that much harder to get back on track. And that should be easy enough for us to understand. One less vice is one less vice to conquer. And so be careful. Strengthen the things that remain. Second thing he says here is to remember where you came from. Verse 3 says, Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast. So we're talking here about people in the church that are saved. We're not speaking of people who have not received the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And many churches do need to do this. They need to weed out the unregenerate church membership. I mean, there are people with their names on the rolls who really don't know Christ, but actually those people aren't true, aren't true members of the church anyway. They may be on a church roll. They might have their name there. But in God's opinion, in God's eyes, they're really not a part of the church. So what we're talking about here is saved people. And I like the way that Jesus says this. He says, remember how you have received. So this is not something that they started themselves. They don't owe their salvation to good sense that they have and good decision making. Nobody could pat themselves on the back and say, wow, what a good boy that I am. I mean, I was smart enough to believe the gospel. So there are many churches with activities and they laud their accomplishments and they want to pat themselves on the back for what they can do. There are pastors in these churches that let you think that you're so blessed because you have them as the pastor. Anybody would be lucky to have them. And that is the same type of crowd that Paul addressed at the church at Corinth. When they were boastful, Paul said, For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? In other words, he says to them, Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Everything that you have came from God. When you had no sense to know God, it was God who woke you up. It was God who called you from spiritual death into spiritual life. You couldn't even lift a spiritual finger. So what are you bragging about? You know, we learned that in the, in, the, in the Philippian study. And here is a very good start for making a dead church a living church. Go back where you came from and remember who you were and what you were. John Newton, who wrote the, the song we sang just a little while ago, Amazing Grace, John Newton was one who knew the depths of his sin so deeply that he felt that he was the one who raised the hammer and drove the nails into the hands of Jesus. He wrote in another song, Sure, never till my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. John Newton could never forget his conversion. 
He was a slave trader. He trafficked in the lives of men. He was a cruel taskmaster. He realized what it was that Christ saved him from, and he could never forget that. But there's some people who just don't get this. They don't understand the depths of human depravity. And so what Jesus says to them, go back and remember what you were saved from. Now the third thing he tells the people, he says, repent of your sins. Repentance is one of the fundamental truths of the Bible, and yet there are many people who really don't understand what repentance is all about. Some have even changed the meaning of repentance to make it equivalent to believe. But there there really is no difference between repentance and faith. Well, there is a difference. And anyone who doesn't see the difference takes the force out of what God really requires in salvation. We must have repentance and faith. And they're not the same thing. Repentance is a change of mind about your sin, about yourself, and about God. It includes deep sorrow and contrition for sins against a holy God. And so when we talk about repentance that accompanies faith and salvation, we simply mean that you must turn from all of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. You can't hold anything back. A person has to repent of all sins. Now here, we're talking about saved people. And while it is true that evangelical repentance includes or, or is in, included in our initial salvation, yet repentance is also a conscious act that we do after salvation. Our souls have been saved from the eternal penalty of sin, but we still inhabit a sinful body. The body hasn't yet been redeemed, and so we have a sinful nature in our body. And so when we live according to that sinful nature, then we need repentance. We need to go to God and tell Him we're sorry for sin. And so when you realize sin, the first thing you do is you go and you repent of that sin, or else your fellowship with God is lost. And I caution you again, as you know I've taught so many times, we're not speaking a relationship here. Your relationship as a child of God can never be lost, but your fellowship with God can be. And this is what Jesus speaks to the church. He will not let our sin stand. And so in the next part of this verse, in verse number 3, he says, If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Now let me give you the picture of what he's saying here. A Christian that refuses to repent of his sin is walking in a precarious position. He may go on in that same sin day after day after day. He may convince himself that since no chastisement has come, no chastisement will come. But just like the church at Sardis, God gives us space to repent. Now the time, that space to repent is what we could call the grace period. Now those of you that like to pay your bills late, you're familiar with grace periods. There's a time there where you don't get penalized and you can... Pay all the way up to the grace period. Well, you might say that when there is no chastisement for a Christian, you're just living in the grace period. But what I would caution you to do is not to gamble in the grace period. Because when you least expect it, that's when heavy chastisement comes. And that's why, that's why Jesus uses the analogy of a thief. A thief comes on you suddenly. And if a thief was going to prepare you for his coming, there would be no thieves. We'd already be waiting. Now, this means to us what Jesus is teaching is that judgment is imminent. 
And Jesus is even gracious with this kind of warning because the intent here is to dissuade us from living under that black cloud that chastisement will come. You can't be happy as a Christian and and be antsy at the same time wondering when God's going to lower the boom on you. Now the next thing that we notice in the passage is is something that's very controversial. And, And let me show you this by asking this third question, who are the redeemed? There are some in Sardis that remain faithful. Now, there must not have been a lot of them because their influence was not strong enough to turn the church around. Most of them had gone the way of the social church. They had all of their activities, and all that it did was just give an illusion of spiritual life. But there were some that remained in the church, and they were faithful to God. And Jesus says about them, They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And their good works prove their worthiness. Now, please understand here, though, that I'm not saying that their good works made them worthy in themselves. That's not true. These are people that surrendered to the will of the Lord. They remained pure, and they demonstrated their holiness by carrying out the works that God wanted them to do. Now, they still had this imperfect holiness... They're, 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 they're not perfectly holy because they're still in the flesh. But what has happened here is that the perfect righteousness of Christ has come in and replaced that. And this is why Jesus says, they will walk with me in white. That's what that's all about. That's, that's a symbol of their righteousness. But the controversy is over what he says there in, the, in verse number 5. He says, they are promised white clothing. And then Jesus says, I will not blot his name out of the book of life. Now, this may seem strange to you, but this is a negative statement with positive implications. There are some people who like to turn this around and they say, well, it must mean then that there are some people who have their names blotted out of the book of life. And so they take that positive implication and they turn it into a negative. Now, unfortunately, there are some Baptists that are so afraid of this argument that they go totally askew on this teaching that Jesus is giving here about the book of life. And so what they say is that everybody has their names written in the book of the living, and then God removes the names of those who don't get saved. Or they may look at this and they'll say, well, nobody has their names written in the book of life until they get saved. Both of those statements are against the teaching of Scripture. Who are the redeemed? Well, here are the redeemed. The redeemed are those with their names written on the roll. The scriptures very clearly teach when the names were written. And you can argue if you want about whether there is an actual roll book or whether this is something that's symbolic. That really doesn't matter because the scriptures are very clear about Christ's intention towards his people. In Revelation 17, verse number 8, it states it this way. The beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. Now, later on, much later on in our study, when we get to Revelation 17, we'll talk about this verse and... I'll explain the first part of it, and we'll talk about the beast, and we'll talk about the bottomless pit, and all of that will be done in its context. But for right now, we need to look at this and see who is it that goes into perdition. And the scriptures show us that it's those who do not have their names written in God's book. 
And this verse in Revelation 17, verse 8, tells us when those names were written. And the answer is, from the foundation of the world. So in this verse, there's a very clear distinction between those who go to hell and those who go to heaven. The ones who go to hell did not have their names written in the book from the foundation of the world. So you can't say that everybody has their names written in the book of life and then God removes their names if they don't believe when they die. Folks, their names were never there, according to this scripture. And secondly, neither can you say that God writes those names in when the person gets saved. Gets saved. Because this verse shows us that these names were there before Adam was ever created. God is not now busy writing in the names of people into the book of life and then removing names from the book of life as if he doesn't know who's supposed to be there. And the idea is totally preposterous to think that we have an omniscient God who's waiting to see what man will do. The scriptures are clear about it. Now, if people would just go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 4, and read that naturally in its context then they would see that God elects to salvation before the foundation of the world, and these are one and the same with those who have their names written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. And they're also the very same ones that Christ draws to himself, according to John 6, verse 37. There Jesus said, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. And so the scriptures work perfectly together when you believe them simply as God states them. Everyone given to the Father will come to Christ. And so here we see the election of God. We see the effectual call of the Holy Spirit. And in our text verse in Revelation 3 verse 5, we also see the preservation of God. He says their names will not be blotted out of his book. So you can't turn that around and make a negative statement out of it because what it would do is contradict other plain scriptures. And so when you have Baptists that deny election and the effectual call of the Spirit, they stick themselves with the problem of trying to reinterpret other clear scriptures in the Word of God. And so what they do, they have to knock in the head this teaching about the book of life and twist it out of its natural shape in order to fit an unnatural interpretation. Now, friends, what we need to do is just believe the Bible like it says Even if we have difficulty understanding why, just believe it what it says. We don't have to figure out the details. God just gave us his word and he says to believe it. Now let's talk about one more question and then we'll be through tonight. Number four, what is their reward? Now here I'm I'm not talking about reward in the same sense that we've used it as we've looked at the other uh, churches of Asia. In those other places, we've been talking about the eternal reward, uh, rewards that come to us because of faithful service. The Bible does tell us that we are going to receive those rewards. We don't know exactly what those rewards are. We don't know how God's going to let us use those. We don't know what it all means. But we do know this, that somehow the rewards, those eternal rewards for faithful service, somehow they do contribute to our happiness in heaven. Now, as stated before that everybody will be happy when you get to heaven. Warren Wiersbe put it this way. He said, everybody's cup in heaven will be full. It's just that some have bigger cups. Now, the reward here then that I'm speaking of is the continuation of the last point that I've just made. This is the guarantee 
that as a believer in Jesus Christ, your name can never be blotted out of God's book. Your name is never going to be taken out of the book of life. And that is further accentuated by Christ's statement in the last part of verse number 5. He says, I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So what is the reward? The reward I'm speaking of here is the confession of Christ. And what I mean is, this is Christ's own confession of us. This is when he says that we belong to him. Now, I think the the Puritan Matthew Poole had this exactly correct when he said it this way. In the day of judgment, this is Jesus, he's paraphrasing what Jesus says. In the day of judgment, I will own them and acknowledge them as mine before my Father and all the angels. I think that's a great statement. I think it's a true statement. As vile and as sinful as we were, When the judgment comes, Christ will admit to the Father, these are mine. And he'll say to the Heavenly Father, those that you have given me, I've not failed to bring with me. I present before you each and every one of them. You've given to me all of them, and now, Father, I present them to you. Now, does that sound like there is any doubt that anyone who's been redeemed by the blood of Christ could actually lose their salvation? That's impossible. We've been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ will never relinquish his ownership of the believer. There's a great old song. I don't know if we've uh, sung it here maybe a long, long time ago, but I like the words of this song. It says, Loved with everlasting love, led by grace that love to know. Gracious spirit from above, thou hast taught me it is so. Oh, this full and perfect peace, Oh, this transport all divine. In a love which cannot cease, I am his, and he is mine. His forever, only his, who the Lord and me shall part. Ah, with what a rest of bliss, Christ can fill the loving heart. Heaven and earth may fade and flee, firstborn light in gloom decline. But while God and I shall be, I am his, and he is mine. Isn't that a great song? But... But while God and I shall be, and that means forever, folks, I am his and he is mine. Let's be a church that keeps our eyes on Jesus Christ. Let's be a church that is truly a living church because we carry out the commission that God has given us, that we give the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we've had to be together tonight. I ask you, Lord, that you would lay upon our hearts the importance of what we've just read and what we've just studied. Lord, we don't want just activity in our church. We don't want to have all kinds of different things going on and not recognize that the focus of everything we do is Jesus Christ. All the glory and all the honor belongs to you. This is not really about building a better us. It's about being like you. And Lord, may we glorify your name as we work together in this church, giving the gospel to those who need to hear. Bless in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.